Chapter 1. The Birth, Infancy, and Youth of Jesus The Nativity Augustus was sitting on the throne of the Roman Empire, and the touch of his finger could set the machinery of government in motion over just about the entire civilized world. He was proud of his power and wealth, and it was one of his favorite activities to compile a register of the populations and revenues of his vast dominions. So he issued an edict, as the evangelist Luke says, that all the world should be taxed. Luke 2, 1. More accurately, the words probably mean that a census that would serve as a basis for future taxation would be taken of all his subjects. One of the countries affected by this decree was Israel, whose king, Herod the Great, was a vassal of Augustus. It set the whole land in motion, for in accordance with ancient Jewish custom, the census was not taken at the places where the inhabitants were then residing, but at the places to which they belonged as members of the original twelve tribes. Among those whom the edict of Augustus forced to travel were a humble pair in the Galilean village of Nazareth, Joseph, the carpenter of the village, and Mary, his espoused wife. They had to travel nearly a hundred miles in order to record themselves in the proper register, for although they were peasants, they had the blood of kings in their veins. They belonged to the ancient and royal town of Bethlehem, in the far south of the country. Day by day the emperor's will, like an invisible hand, forced them southward along the weary road, until at last they climbed the rocky ascent that led to the gate of the town. They reached an inn, but found it crowded with strangers who, occupied with the same errand as themselves, had arrived before them. No friendly house opened its door to receive them, and they were eager to make arrangements for their lodging. So in a corner of the yard of the inn, that was also occupied by the beasts of the many travelers, Mary brought forth her firstborn son that very night. Because there was no other woman's hand to assist her, nor a bed to hold him, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Luke 2, 7-12 This was the manner of the birth of Jesus. I never felt the full emotion of the scene until one day when I was standing in a room of an old inn in the market town of Eisleben in central Germany. I was told that on that very spot, four centuries earlier, amid the noise of a market day and the bustle of a tavern, the wife of the poor miner, Hans Luther, who happened to be there on business, being surprised, like Mary, with sudden distress, brought forth in sorrow and poverty the child who was to become Martin Luther, the hero of the Reformation and the maker of modern Europe. The next morning in Bethlehem, the noise and bustle broke out again in the inn and the yard. The citizens went about their work. The registration proceeded. In the meantime, the greatest event in the history of the world had taken place. We never know where a great beginning might be happening. Every arrival of a new soul in the world is a mystery, 
and a closed box of possibilities. Only Joseph and Mary knew the tremendous secret that on her, the peasant maiden and carpenter's bride, had been bestowed the honor of being the mother of him who was the Messiah of her race, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. It had been foretold in ancient prophecy that he would be born on this very spot. Scripture. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Micah 5, 2. The proud emperor's decree drove the anxious couple southward, but another hand was leading them on. They were being guided by the hand of him who, for the accomplishment of his purposes, overrules the plans of emperors and kings, of statesmen and parliaments, even though they may not realize it. Mary and Joseph were being led by the hand of the one who hardened the heart of Pharaoh, called Cyrus like a slave to his foot, and made the mighty Nebuchadnezzar his servant. In the same way, God would overrule the pride and ambition of Augustus for his own far-reaching purpose. The Group Around the Infant Although Jesus made his entry on the stage of life so humbly and silently, although the citizens of Bethlehem did not dream of what had happened in their midst, although the emperor of Rome did not know that his decree had influenced the birth of a king who was yet to bear rule, not only over the Roman world, but over many lands where Rome's eagles never flew, although the history of mankind went thundering forward the next morning in the channels of its ordinary routine, quite unconscious of the event that had happened, yet it did not completely escape notice. As the babe leaped in the womb of the aged Elizabeth, when the mother of her Lord approached her, Luke 1, 41 and 44, so when he who brought the new world with him appeared, there sprang up anticipations and foreshadowings of the truth in various representatives of the old world that was passing away. Through sensitive and waiting souls here and there, there went a dim and half-conscious thrill that drew them around the infant's cradle. Look at the group that gathered to gaze on him. It represented in miniature the whole of his future history. First came the shepherds from the neighboring fields, Luke 2, 8-20. That which was unnoticed by the kings and great ones of this world was such a captivating theme to the princes of heaven that they burst the cloak of the invisibility in which they covered themselves in order to express their joy and explain the significance of the great event. Seeking the most worthy hearts to whom they might communicate it, they found them in these simple shepherds who were living the life of contemplation and prayer in the expressive fields where Jacob had kept his flocks, where Boaz and Ruth had been married, and where David, the great Old Testament type, had spent his youth. It was in these fields that the shepherds, by the study of the secrets and needs of their own hearts, learned far more of the nature of the Savior who was to come than the Pharisee amid the religious pomp of the temple, or the scribe burrowing without the seeing eye among the prophecies of the Old Testament. The angel directed them to where the Savior was, and they hurried to the town to find him. 
They were the representatives of the peasant people, with honest and good hearts, who later formed the bulk of his disciples. Next to them came Simeon and Anna, Luke 2, 25-38, the representatives of the devout and intelligent students of the Scripture, who at that time were expecting the appearance of the Messiah and afterward contributed some of his most faithful followers. On the eighth day after his birth, the child was circumcised, Luke 2, 21-24, thus being made under the law, Galatians 4, 4, entering into the covenant and inscribing his name in his own blood in the roll of the nation. Soon thereafter, when the days of Mary's purification were ended, Joseph and Mary carried him from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord in the temple. The Lord of the temple was entering the temple of the Lord, but few visitors there could have been less noticed by the priests. For Mary, instead of offering the sacrifice that was usual in such cases, could only afford two turtle doves, the offering of the poor. Luke 2:24. However, there were eyes looking on, undazzled by the shows and glitter of the world, from which his poverty could not conceal him. Simeon, an aged saint, who in answer to many prayers had received a secret promise that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, met the parents and the child. Suddenly it shot through him like a flash of lightning that this at last was he, and taking him up in his arms, he praised God for the coming of the one who would bring light to the Gentiles and who was the glory of his people Israel, Isaiah 42.6 and Luke 2.32. While Simeon was still speaking, another witness joined the group. It was Anna, a saintly widow who literally dwelt in the courts of the Lord. She had purified the eye of her spirit with the healing salves and herbs of prayer and fasting until it could pierce the veils of the senses with a prophetic glance. She united her testimony with that of Simeon, praising God and confirming the mighty secret to the other expectant souls who were hoping for redemption in Israel. The shepherds and these aged saints were near the location where the new force entered the world, but it also thrilled receptive souls at a much greater distance. It was probably after the presentation in the temple, and after the parents had carried their child back to Bethlehem, where it was their intention to reside instead of returning to Nazareth, that he was visited by the wise men of the East. Matthew 2, 1-12 These were members of the educated class of the Magians, the storehouses of science, philosophy, medical skill, and religious mysteries in the countries beyond the Euphrates. Tacitus, Suetonius, and Josephus tell us that in the region from where they came, there then prevailed an expectation that a great king was to arise in Judea. We know also from the calculations of the great astronomer Kepler that at this very time there was visible in the heavens a brilliant temporary star. The Magi were enthusiastic students of astrology who believed that any unusual phenomenon in the heavens was the sign of some remarkable event on earth. It is possible that, connecting this star to which their attention would undoubtedly have been eagerly directed, 
with the expectation mentioned by the ancient historians, they were led westward to see if it had been fulfilled. There must also have been awakened in them a deeper desire to which God responded. If their search began in scientific curiosity and speculation, God led it on to the perfect truth. That is always his way. Instead of making tirades against the imperfect, he speaks to us in the language we understand, even if it expresses his meaning very imperfectly and guides us thereby to the perfect truth. Just as he used astrology to lead the world to astronomy and alchemy to conduct it to chemistry, and as the revival of learning during the Renaissance preceded the Reformation, so he used the knowledge of these men, which was half falsehood and superstition, to lead them to the light of the world. Their visit was a prophecy of how in the future the Gentile world would honor his doctrine and salvation, bringing its wealth and talents, its science and philosophy, to offer at his feet. The shepherds, with their simple wonder, Simeon and Anna, with a reverence enriched by the treasured wisdom and piety of centuries, and the Magi, with the lavish gifts of the Orient, and the open brow of Gentile knowledge, all gathered around his cradle to worship the Holy Child. However, while these worthy worshippers were gazing on him, a sinister and murderous face came and looked over their shoulders. It was the face of Herod. This prince then occupied the throne of the country, the throne of David and the Maccabees, but he was an alien and a low-born usurper. His subjects hated him, and it was only by Roman favor that he was maintained in his seat. He was able, ambitious, and magnificent, yet he had a very cruel, crafty, gloomy, and filthy mind. He had been guilty of every crime. He had made his very palace swim in blood, having murdered his favorite wife, three of his sons, and many of his other relatives. He was now old and tortured with disease and grief. He was unpopular and was a cruel terror to every possible candidate to the throne that he had usurped. The Magi had naturally turned their steps to the capital in order to inquire where he was to be born, whose sign they had seen in the east. The thought touched Herod in his sorest place. But with diabolical hypocrisy, he concealed his suspicions. Having learned from the priests that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, he directed the strangers there, but arranged for them to return and tell him the very house where the new king was. He hoped to cut him off with a single blow. However, his plans were frustrated, for being warned by God, the wise men did not return to tell Herod, but returned to their own country another way. Herod's fury then burst forth like a storm, and he sent his soldiers to murder every child under two years of age in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 16-18 He just as well could have attempted to cut through a mountain of stone as to cut the chain of the divine purposes. He thrust his sword into the nest, but the bird had already flown. Joseph had fled with the child to Egypt, remaining there until Herod died, when he returned and dwelt at Nazareth. Joseph had been warned not to return to Bethlehem 
because he would have been there in the kingdom of Archelaus, the like-minded son of a bloodthirsty father. Matthew 2, 19-23 Herod's murderous face, glaring down on the infant, was a sad prophecy of how the powers of the world were to persecute him and cut off his life from the earth. The Silent Years at Nazareth The records that we possess about Jesus up to this point are, as we have seen, comparatively full. But after moving to Nazareth after the return from Egypt, our information comes to a sudden stop. Regarding the rest of the life of Jesus up until his public ministry begins, a thick covering is drawn that is only lifted once. We would have wanted the information to continue with the same fullness through the years of his boyhood and youth. In modern biographies, few parts are more interesting than the anecdotes that are told of the childhood of the subject, for in these we can often see in miniature and in charming simplicity the character and the plan of the future life. What would we give to know the habits, the friendships, the thoughts, the words, and the actions of Jesus during these early years? Only one flower of anecdote has been thrown over the wall of the hidden garden, and it is so exquisite that it fills us with intense longing to see the garden itself. However, it has pleased God, whose silence is no less wonderful than his words, to keep it closed to us. It was natural that where God was silent and curiosity was strong, the imagination of man would attempt to fill up the blank. Accordingly, in the early church there appeared apocryphal gospels that pretended to give full details where the inspired gospels were silent. They are particularly full of the sayings and activities of the childhood of Jesus, but they only show how unequal the human imagination was to such a theme. Their glitter and imaginative depictions contrast with the solidity and truthfulness of the scripture narrative. They make him a worker of frivolous and useless marbles, such as molding birds of clay and making them fly, changing his playmates into young goats, and so forth. Basically, they are compilations of worthless and often blasphemous fables. These absurd failures warn us not to allow the suggestions of imagination to intrude into the hallowed enclosure. It is enough to know that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2:52. He was a real child and youth, and he passed through all the stages of natural development. Body and mind grew together, the one expanding to manly vigor and the other acquiring more and more knowledge and power. His opening character exhibited a grace that made everyone who saw it wonder and love its goodness and purity. Although we are forbidden to allow our imaginations to run loose here, it is our duty to make use of such authentic materials as are supplied by the manners and customs of the time, or by incidents of his later life that refer back to his earlier years in order to connect his infancy with the period when the gospel narratives again take up the thread of biography. It is possible in this way to gain, at least in some degree, an idea of what Jesus was like as a boy and a young man, as well as what the influences were amid which his development proceeded through so many silent years. We know the kind of home influences in which he was brought up. 
His home was one of those that were the glory of his country, as they are of our own, the homes of the godly and intelligent working class. Joseph, its head, was a godly and wise man, but the fact that he is not mentioned in Christ's later life has generally been believed to indicate that he died during the youth of Jesus, perhaps leaving the care of the household on his shoulders. His mother probably exercised the most decisive of all external influences on his development. What she was can be inferred from the fact that she was chosen from all the women of the world to be crowned with the supreme honor of womanhood. The song that she poured forth on the subject of her own great destiny shows her to have been a woman devoted to God and fervently poetical. Luke 1, 46-55 She was a student of Scripture, and especially of its great women. For her song is saturated with Old Testament ideas and is built upon Hannah's song. 1 Samuel 2, 1-10 Mary has a spirit that is exquisitely humble, yet capable of thoroughly appreciating the honor conferred upon her. She was not the miraculous queen of heaven as superstition has caricatured her, but was a woman exquisitely pure, holy, loving, and honorable. This is Oriole, halo enough. Jesus grew up in her love and passionately returned it. There were other residents of the household. Jesus had brothers and sisters. From two of these, James and Jude, we have epistles in Holy Scripture in which we learn from them. It is likely, in their unbelieving state, that they were somewhat harsh and unsympathetic men. In any event, they seem to have not believed on him during his lifetime, and it is not likely that they were close companions to him in Nazareth. John 7, 3-5 Jesus was probably much alone, and the sentiment behind his saying, that a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house, probably reached back into the years before his ministry began. Matthew 13, 57 and Mark 6, 4. He received his education at home, or from a scribe attached to the village synagogue. It was only, however, a poor man's education. As the scribes contemptuously said, he had never learned, or, as we would say, he was not college-bred. Maybe not, but the love of knowledge was awake within him early. John seven fifteen. He knew daily the joy of deep and happy thought. He had the best of all keys to knowledge, an open mind and a loving heart. And he had the three great books always open before him, the Bible, man, and nature. It is easy to understand with what fervent intensity Jesus would devote himself to the Old Testament. His sayings, which are full of quotations from it, provide abundant proof of how constantly it formed the food of his mind and the comfort of his soul. His youthful study of it was the secret of the marvelous ability with which he made use of it afterward in order to enrich his preaching, enforce his doctrine, repel the assaults of opponents, and overcome the temptations of the evil one. His quotations also show that he read it in the original Hebrew, and not in the Greek translation that was then in general use. Hebrew was a dead language even in Israel, 
just as Latin now is in Italy. But Jesus would naturally want to read it in the very words in which it was written. Those who have not enjoyed a broad education, but amid many difficulties have mastered Greek in order to read their New Testament in the original language, will perhaps best understand how, in a country village, Jesus made himself master of the ancient tongue, and with what delight he was accustomed, in the scrolls of the synagogue, or in such manuscripts as he may have himself possessed, to carefully read over the sacred page. The language in which he thought and spoke familiarly was Aramaic, a branch of the same stem to which the Hebrew language belongs. We have fragments of it in some recorded sayings of his, such as Talitha Kumi, Mark 5.41, and Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, Mark 15.34. He would have the same chance of learning Greek as a boy born in the Scottish Highlands has of learning English, since the Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew 4.15, was then full of Greek-speaking inhabitants. Therefore, Jesus probably mastered three languages. One of them was the grand religious language of the world, in whose literature he was deeply versed. Another was the most perfect means of expressing secular thought that has ever existed, although there is no evidence that he had any acquaintance with the masterpieces of Greek literature. The third was the language of the common people to whom his preaching was to be especially addressed. There are few places where human nature can be better studied than in a country village, for there one sees the whole of each individual life and knows one's neighbors thoroughly. Far more people are seen in a city, but far fewer of the people are known. It is only the outside of life that is visible. In a village, though, the view outward is limited, but the view downward is deep, and the view upward is unimpeded. Nazareth was a notoriously wicked town, as we learn from the proverbial question, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? John 1.46 Jesus had no acquaintance with sin in his own soul, but in the town he had a full exhibition of the awful problem that it was to be his life's work to deal with. He was still further brought into contact with human nature by his trade, there can be no doubt that he worked as a carpenter in Joseph's shop. Who would know better than his own townsmen, who asked in their astonishment at his preaching, Is not this the carpenter? Mark 6.3 It would be difficult to exhaust the significance of the fact that God chose for his son, when he dwelt among men, out of all the possible positions in which he might have placed him, the part of a working man. It stamped men's common toils with everlasting honor. It acquainted Jesus with the feelings of the multitude, and it helped him to know what was in man. It was later said that he knew this so well that he did not need anyone to teach him. 1 John 2.27 Travelers tell us that the spot where Jesus grew up is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. Nazareth is situated in a secluded cup-like valley amid the mountains of Zebulon, right where they dip down into the plain of Esdraelon, with which it is connected by a steep and rocky path. Its white houses, with vines clinging to their walls, are enclosed amid gardens and groves of olive, 
fig, orange, and pomegranate trees. The fields are divided by hedges of cactus and are enameled with innumerable flowers of every hue. Behind the village rises a hill 500 feet high, from whose summit is seen one of the most wonderful views in the world. The mountains of Galilee, with snowy Hermon, towering above them, are on the north. The ridge of Carmel, the coast of Tyre, and the sparkling waters of the Mediterranean are on the west. A few miles to the east are the wooded, cone-like bulk of Tabor. To the south is the plain of Esdraelon, with the mountains of Ephraim beyond. The preaching of Jesus shows how deeply he had drunk the essence of natural beauty and reveled in the changing aspects of the seasons. It was when wandering in these fields as a lad that he gathered the images of beauty that he poured out in his parables and addresses. It was on that hill that he acquired the habit of retreating to the mountaintops to spend the night in solitary prayer. The doctrines of his preaching were not thought out on the spur of the moment. They were poured out in a living stream when the occasion came. But the water had been gathered into the hidden well for many years before. In the fields and on the mountainside, he had thought them out during the years of happy and undisturbed meditation and prayer. There is still one important educational influence to be mentioned. Every year, after he was twelve years old, he went with his parents to the Passover at Jerusalem. Fortunately, an account has been preserved of the first of these visits. It is the only occasion on which the veil is lifted during thirty years. Everyone who can remember his own first journey from a village home to the capital of his country will understand the joy and excitement with which Jesus set out. He traveled over 80 miles of a country where nearly every mile teemed with historical and inspiring memories. He mingled with the constantly growing caravan of pilgrims who were filled with the religious enthusiasm of the great ecclesiastical event of the year. His destination was a city that was loved by every Jewish heart with a strength of affection that has never been given to any other capital. It was a city full of objects and memories suited to touch the deepest springs of interest and emotion in his heart. It was swarming at the time of Passover with strangers from about 50 different countries, speaking as many languages and wearing as many different types of clothing. For the first time, Jesus was to take part in an ancient ceremony suggestive of countless patriotic and sacred memories. It is no wonder that, when the day came to return home, he was so excited with the new objects of interest that he failed to join his party at the appointed place and time. One place above all others fascinated his interest. It was the temple, and especially the school there in which the masters of wisdom taught. His mind was full of questions that these doctors might be asked to answer. His thirst for knowledge had an opportunity for the first time to drink its fill. It was there that his anxious parents, who, missing him after a day's journey northward, returned in anxiety to seek him, and found him listening with excited looks to the oracles of the wisdom of the day. His answer to the reproachful question of his mother lays bare his childhood mind and for a moment offers a wide glance over the thoughts that used to preoccupy him in the fields of Nazareth. Luke 2, 41-52 
It has often been asked whether Jesus knew all along that he was the Messiah, and if not, when and how the knowledge dawned upon him. Was it suggested by hearing the story of his birth from his mother, or was it announced to him from within? Did it dawn upon him all at once or gradually? When did the plan of his career, which he carried out so unhesitatingly from the beginning of his ministry, shape itself in his mind? Was it the slow result of years of reflection, or did it come to him at once? These questions have occupied the greatest Christian minds and have received very various answers. I will not try to answer them, and especially with his reply to his mother before me. Luke 2.49 I cannot trust myself even to think of a time when he did not know what his work in this world was to be. His subsequent visits to Jerusalem must have greatly influenced the development of his mind. If he often went back to hear and question the rabbis in the temple schools, he must soon have discovered how shallow their far-famed learning was. It was probably on these annual visits that he discovered the utter corruption of the religion of the day and the need for a radical reform of both doctrine and practice and also indicated the people and practices that he was later to assail with the vehemence of his holy indignation. These were the external conditions amid which the manhood of Jesus grew toward maturity. It would be easy to exaggerate the influence that they might have exerted on his development. The greater and more original a character is, the less dependent it is on the characteristics of its environment. It is fed from deep wellsprings within itself, and in its beginning there is a type enclosed that expands in obedience to its own laws and bids defiance to circumstances. In any other circumstances, Jesus would have grown to be in every important respect the very same person as he became in Nazareth.